Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode... Do you want to take a guess? 91. Close. 89. 89. 89. That's crazy. Just don't ask me to count backwards from 10 or 100. <laughs> you know, 100 minus 7 is... Uh, yeah. Never mind. Mm, definitely your IQ, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, then we'd that be adding. Good. That was good. We'd be adding. <laughs> there, I, I know where two of them are, kind of. So anyway, we're going to release a couple of a uh, couple of things that uh, we released two last week. <laughs> yes, we released two last week because we missed a week because she got the vid. No, we missed a week because you didn't plan ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. Yeah. Anyway, either way, this topic. I will never forget when we were doing our waiver training back when you had to do the waiver training to get your ability to, your ex waiver to prescribe buprenorphine, which I think PAs and nurse practitioners still need. But when we had to do it, and we did this class, what, in 2016, I believe it was, and we go through this whole long day, it's like eight hours. We kept going, where's the section on discontinuing yeah, buprenorphine? We were, <laughs> we were like so nothing. irritating. Yeah, there was nothing. Irritating is my word of the week. I think it's only Monday. And now, of course, really, when you think about it, it's like this is a long-term medication. You know, anything that used for MOUD. Right. So it should be. So where this came from was an article in the Journal of Addiction Med from like recently on this Zwiebin. Zwiebin? At at L. What would you say? Zwiebin or Zwiebin? I don't know. Swabbing. Anyway, the, the whole point of this article, which was just fascinating to me, which then, of course, put me down a rabbit hole, was when is the right time to discontinue methadone or buprenorphine? How should you do it? Is there a better one to taper from, meaning methadone or buprenorphine? Because there was this whole thing about switch to one and then taper, switch to the other and then taper. Mm. But A anyway. quandary. Quandary. So just to kind of touch on, you'll probably heard us lately kind of going back and forth between using MAT and MOUD, medication-assisted treatment, which is widely used if you're a treatment provider. But then the new thing is this MOUD, which stands for Medication for Opioid Use Disorder, which is kind of the new Well, the problem with it is is that MAT used to be easy to say. MAUD. Now you got to say MAUD? MOUD. It's a lot of, yeah. But that's the more exacting Words. It is. The meds themselves bring significant improvement. Um, some people call it opioid agonist treatment, which I don't love because buprenorphine isn't a full agonist. It's a partial agonist. Yeah, interestingly, in some of the stuff that I was looking at, if you go back 10 or 15 years, they were they would always refer to it as an agonist, buprenorphine. And it is, but it's also partial it's agonist. partial agonist. It's only half cool like me. Yeah. Because you only have half as many X chromosomes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's just avoid that. Anyway, so here's the biggest misunderstanding and the whole reason why it wasn't even in waiver training or why we are bringing this to you today is that successful treatment requires the patient to discontinue the medication at some point and still maintain, quote unquote, stable recovery. That is the understanding. Misunderstanding. Yeah, it's not a thing. But what does the research show? I don't know. Grandpa? I hope you're going to tell me. 
because my guess is it shows the longer the better. And I think we all, you know, everywhere we've gone, of course, we throw around that number that if you stop you in four five or five years. years, you know, it's that 86% relapse. Yeah. So most patients, when attempting to discontinue and maintain their gains, are unable. And I don't really love that, that they're unable, because that makes it look like they fail. It's fault. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> We've had a lot of jinx today. I should just say jinx, and then you can't talk till I say your name three times. This is a great world. Yeah. Okay, so these two authors, Best and Laudette, have a quote. Quote, recovery is a lived experience with principles focused on the central ideas of hope, choice, freedom, and aspiration that are experienced rather than diagnosed and occur in real life settings rather than in the rarefied atmosphere of clinical settings. Mm. Basically meaning we have to realize people have lives and they live lives and everybody has their own experience. And so there shouldn't really be a black and white, you know, MOUD is part of the world. It's part of their, it's part of their recovery. And I don't think we need to have this. Wouldn't it be simpler to say that patients are all different? You just don't know. Some, but this was way more fancy of a sentence. Yeah, I know, but, you know, in northern Minnesota, you go, everybody's different. Okay. The next quote, you can read this one because it's much yeah. more simple and to the point, That's like you said. Like I am. Less poetic. And uh, this was by Granfield and Cloud, and they added, and I quote, uh, recovery is a process rather than an end state with the goal being ongoing quest for a better life. Right. I like that. Yeah. We could just but there's some history. There's some history. So methadone, you know, it's been around the longest. It's been controversial from the beginning. Um, In the 60s and 70s, patients were told that and and providers, methadone could stabilize patients who were given up to two years. So they basically got methadone. They had two years to steady their lives. Yeah, straighten out. Straighten out. You had two years to do it, and then they were required to taper off. But the research on this has said most patients were unable to discontinue. Um, and maintain what they had created while on the med in recovery. Mm, interesting. So basically, yeah, well, the two-year limit, though, I mean, back to that whole 86%, and who put that arbitrary two years on? You know, I mean, it's, shouldn't that be long enough for you to get your act get together? That's what your dad would say to you. Get your act together. Here, you're going to your room. But anyway, um, you know, it, bup and naloxone is very similar, you know. I mean, when people discontinue, they they have trouble. With the advantage of buprenorphine, naloxone, suboxone, or just plain buprenorphine, is that it's a partial agonist that has less toxicity, is a prescription. Therefore, it was felt to be less stigmatizing when it was kind of brought onto the scene. But you look at all the people over the last five years that we have run into that said, yeah, I was just started on the medication and quickly tapered off over a period of weeks. And that's what a particular treatment setting would do. Right. Because abstinence-based is the only way, which works for some substances of abuse, but yeah. opioids are different. So work. there was this study done by Breen et al. in 2003 where they looked at patients who were transitioned from bu- or methadone to buprenorphine naloxone, then tapering them off from there, thinking it was going to be an easier taper. What they actually found is that there was not much success. And so I just found this study really interesting, and I'll go through it because, you know, this data, how I wrote it down, you might not understand. So they only had 51 patients, so it is a small study understanding that. 38 of the 51 patients 
were actually able to taper off completely. So 75% of the patients were able to taper off. However, of that 75%, 69% of those were using heroin or methadone at one month follow-up. So <laughs> that wouldn't be success. 69% of 75%. So very few patients. Like 49 were using 50. Right. Um, mm. We're still by one month. Four of the 51 patients overall, so 13% of the patients were transferred to buprenorphine and just stayed there. So they like, hmm, I like this better than the methadone. They just stayed there. One of them eventually tapered and stayed off. They didn't really go into the details. Um, but of the ones who didn't successfully get off, so the other, what, 13 of them, so the other 25% of the original 51 um, stopped their taper because they didn't they felt unstable they had withdrawal symptoms they had relapsed or lapsed um and then they other some of them had pain management problems mm. so that didn't that study didn't show success in terms of recovery off of the matm mm. you know this this is kind of interesting this study by dunn at mm-hmm. l i always thought it's like dunn and l never mind like Al was part of it. But anyway, uh, this was in 2011. Actually, they looked at uh, actually eight studies that evaluated, um, you know, the conduct post-taper. And I, I thought it was really interesting that... No, the, not conduct post-taper. It did an oh, this was conducted. that conducted post-taper follow-up. Yeah. So they basically looked at them, hey, what's going on after you taper? And median of 23% of patients had a negative UDES. So meaning... Nothing, yeah, nothing of abuse in their, in their urine after the first follow up day after the taper. So now so that's just varied. one day. Well, yeah. no, at the first follow up day. So this varied. That was kind of worded weird. It wasn't like they came the next day, it was sometime between the next day they had their follow up and within a month. Wow. So only 23% within one month were negative, still were maintaining recovery. So was stopping a good idea? Probably not for 75% of the people. 77%. Yeah. Anyway. My math went bad. We're going to go through another couple studies, and then we'll kind of go through some misconceptions, which I love at the bottom here. So sample study et al. did a retrospective longitudinal cohort analysis of a lot of patients, 17,329 Medicaid patients, so 2013 through 2017, um, early discontinuation risk factors. So if they were to be tapered off of their MLUD, Risk factors for relapse, younger adults, minorities, those with a history of non-opioid substance use disorders as well, so either comorbid or had they had a previous use disorder, and ones who were put on a low initial dose. These are all buprenorphine patients, I believe. Actually, what they found, that psychiatric comorbidities was not a risk factor statistically for relapsing. You know. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. It doesn't. And there's another study or another thing coming up that actually mm. talks about that. But in this one study of a lot of patients, so if you fit into those four things, you really are at a high risk of relapsing. Well, if you think of the people that you've had that have kind, you know, that have kind of talked about going off, I've had a couple of my older patients mm-hmm. that have like, okay, you know, I think, I, and they were more pill-related pill issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if anyone's going to look back at that then because... And it will be a while before I think you can retrospectively look back just because mm. our older patients, like you said, pill people and mostly. Well, but it, heroin kind of came out after the pill epidemic. You know, it was the second wave of the opiate epidemic was the 
was the heroin and now the fentanyl. Mm -hmm. So are we going to show even harder rates of discontinuing as we look at the quote-unquote harder drugs? Yeah, and I think if you look at this, you know, think about people that have been in a pattern of opioid use, which results in heroin or fentanyl, and the number of aberrant behaviors. And we've done talks before on kind of the the predictors of addiction. Mm -hmm. But if you think of some of the patients that we've seen who uh, had a little bit of trouble, went from opioids that they were being prescribed and had a little trouble that way, a lot of times they didn't have the aberrant behaviors for a prolonged period of time. And so is that a group that more easily can be tapered off? And I think I've seen a few of those that have tapered off and stopped. It's like how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? The world may never know. May never know. All right, Bensley study 2014 found that most who discontinued their maintenance did it involuntarily. Wow. And this was one of those very strict program requirements. So this is that thing we've talked about from the beginning. You know, you make a patient sign this care plan, blah, blah, blah. And if you fail to be perfect in a week, meaning you may use meth, you may use marijuana, you may have one issue in your next month or two or three or five, you're cut off. How many times have we seen a patient on MOUD where they've been kicked out of a program because they don't have a frontal lobe and they've been in recovery for five minutes? Way too long. I mean, because the bottom line is it hurts so badly when you see that patient. Yep. You've, you've got to work with them, meet them where they're at, as they say. So you gotta be Mm. flexible. So and every study like this. So this study that this, this article we're kind of basing today's talk on the one by Zwebin basically looked at so many studies. I just highlighted a few in this talk here, but every study they looked at and the list was long and the rates of relapse were greater than 50% within one month of discontinuing. Yeah. And only 18% were actually completely abstinent. So the, bottom, the first one. I think the bottom line is that, you know, we don't stop people's meds involuntarily. We keep trying and, uh, and you don't stop. Right. And I think we don't judge if they're still having other issues with other substances. Those are reasons for great conversations. Right. So we're going to shift right now into why do people still want to discontinue it? So there's four big main mm. misconceptions, and then we're going to kind of talk about the things where people think, oh, if you meet this X, Y, Z criteria, you should be considered for discontinuing. But the misconceptions, number one, is that it's necessary. Yeah. Like, you have to do this. And I think some of that is the stigma, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they're on this medication, they're coming to the clinic, they're, uh, you know, they're doing things, and they feel like... Well, they don't, and I've had patients say this to me. Well, I don't want to be on drugs forever. Right. And it's like, you know, because then people think I'm still got a problem. Right. So the carnal argument to that is that I love this. There's a lot of dependence producing medications. So you'll hear people say, well, you know, and this is where the whole abstinence-based treatment comes in where people get told, well, you're not really quote unquote clean and you're still dependent on that drug. Well, there's other dependence producing drugs, medications, synthetic thyroid, antidepressants, antipsychotics, antihistamines, blood pressure medications, antiepileptics, and more. So there's a lot of medications that people take and think are just fine that aren't stigmatizing that you're also dependent on. Yeah. That could create some type of withdrawal, too, if you stopped. True. And, of course, I think probably the biggest misconception when I have, and we all have, uh, patients who go to different groups, is that if they're still on any medication that they're not, quote, 
clean, unquote, uh, that they're still using. Right. Um, and so that's been a tough one, I think, especially when people want to go to meetings and they don't want to admit that they're taking MOUD. Right. And, you know, because then the people themselves feel this way or that they get looked at as they're, they have a defect or a moral weakness. Any accomplishments or successes they have while on the med are devalued because, like, they didn't do it alone or whatever. Um, yeah. And, and then, then there's the employment thing. Yeah. And actually, you know, I've had a number of patients who had to write down that they were on buprenorphine for their for their drug screens, and they find that very, uh, very tough. Right. Ugh. So, yeah. Next one, misconception. If I tried harder, I could get off opioid medications. This mm. totally negates the fact that half of addiction and use disorders is genetic. So it's not really all, you know, there is some genetic predisposition. So it's not just about trying. Like, I can't will my eyes to be a different color. <laughs> I mean, I can wear colored contacts, but, I mean, I can't, you can't change that. That's true. I never quite thought of it that way. And... People who have this predisposition and get this use disorder with opioids, it does change. The, let's go back to the neurobiology. So Ugh. there's changes in the brain. Please don't. And some, we don't really know how long it takes for that brain to heal. And does it ever heal all the way completely? Again, well, I think the, for those of you who've seen patients <laughs> uh, or seen a lot of patients that you've put on MOUD, you run into those patients that say, the first time I took this drug, I knew I wanted to feel like this forever. And remember that many of us over the years have had to, with a procedure or something, had to take one of these medications, and it doesn't have that effect. And so that genetic side of it, that, that predisposition, it's, it, I think we can't understand. Right, but you cannot judge that either. Nope. Nope, so. Yeah. I mean, we can't judge you for... Never mind. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> misconception. Medications. For, for being cool? Yeah, sure. That are easier to taper are better. Meaning some people think, well, you know, it does take a while to taper buprenorphine or methadone because they're so long acting. Therefore, you know, you're just not doing great because you can't even taper off of this. It needs to, you need to be able to get off of it quickly to get to abstinence. And if you can't get off it quickly, then you must have more addiction issues. Hmm. That's weird. Yeah, we can skip that next little statement. Um, okay, so really quickly, there's all these things, and I guess I didn't know there was a title to them, but there is. There's this recovery capital checklist, and this is something I think, you know, in our brains having taken care of so many patients at this point, you kind of think about these things, but there's actually this checklist of 16 yes or no questions um, basically based on earlier tapering readiness inventory that was developed by Vermouth, 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 and Sorensen in 1987. So this was basically made to see who, you know, what kind of things can you do to help a person's life? Psychosocial interventions, the job thing, the stable life that would improve the outcomes if they discontinued their medication. You know, though, the reality of this is that often when patients come in, they say, I'm going to stop. And... I think it's really important that you know how to address that particular thing, exactly. the discussions that you say. And I think a lot of these things would be things that you talk to them about. Is your life stable yet? You know, do you feel like there's things that would stress you out that would make you go that way? And I think the conversations I've had have been like that. And mm -hmm. I would, and the other thing that I always do is say, if you change your mind during this taper at any point, you call me and right. we'll go right back. 
You know, and some of these are kind of obvious. Have you been abstaining from illicit drugs? Obviously, yeah. if you're not, you're probably not ready. It's the whole, are you around people that are still using? But really what this study showed, and many subsequent studies even after this, showed that there is no answer to this checklist. You Because it really didn't show anything. It didn't say, okay, if you've met every one of these requirements, quote unquote, you're going to, you're going to do well. No, it's, it's, but when like you just mentioned, Kurt, is that when they bring this up to you that they want to taper, this is a great discussion. Yep. And again, not that nobody can ever get off. That's not what we're saying. It's just, it's not that black and white. Yeah. I mean, these are actually very fun conversations when you get to mm-hmm. really kind of explore how they're doing and, you know, I always just say, listen, do you really want to know how I feel? Because I'll just tell you, you know, how I feel about this. And usually I started with like, is there anything that's not going well right now for you? And they're like, no, things are great. Is there a reason that you want to take a risk with that right, right now? And then if we do taper, we start and we do it very slowly so they can see. And I can't tell you how many times I've been called back. And they're like, you know what? I, I think you're right. I'm going to stick with it. Well, and it's it's always interesting to hear their reasoning for wanting to discontinue, you know, oh, my significant other doesn't want me on this or yeah. the job thing. It's always one of those misconceptions that you really, I, I very rarely had a person, you know, with just, I don't know. The, the, there's, there's usually a weird reason that you just need to talk through, but you know, we've done it. And then we've had people off for a while that just, understand that this is like a blood pressure man they want to go back on correct okay so there's this newer checklist physician risk factor checklist this is not to assess if your doctor like hurts getting too old and you shouldn't see them anymore this is like <laughs> things a physician can look out to see if a person's ah, ready well, that um, makes sense it's really focuses more on that informed consent about the high risk of tapering so it's exactly what you just talked about this is a checklist more to frame that conversation with your patients if they are wanting to, to talk about it. So it's yeah. 20 yes or no questions. A lot of the same things. I mean, some obvious things are they, you know. I mean, basically what you're doing is you're screening them for kind of aberrant behavior. I mean, that's really what a lot okay. of these are. I'm glad you just interrupted me and said that because I would have, I was kind of going to go long-winded there. I know. And I, I think all of these are. I mean, if you have a patient... And they have some aberrant behaviors, and they're like, eh, I don't think I'm going to stop. Boy, do you really think that's a good plan when we're already having a little trouble? Right. You know. So general conclusion of this amazing talk here is that discontinuing is... Amazing not, might be I'm, a stretch. Discontinuing is not recommended. And back to what you just said again is that there's finding why. The personal goals, it's a family member goals, the addiction treatment staff goal, like... Why? Yeah, is it a spouse? And if that would it is, be family members. Yeah, goal. and if it is, bring them in. Let's have the chat. Let's have the chat. So it was an it was an average talk. I wonder if the spouses ever feel that stigma. I bet they do. Oh yeah, yeah I'm know? sure they do. Even if it's not them that are on it, they just feel like I don't know. Yeah. So some many patients want to. Very few are long-term successful at it, and the medical community should direct its efforts to overcome the barriers to long-term maintenance. So we should maybe focus our time and attention on breaking down the stigma rather than, Mm. you know, getting off the medication. So I love this end statement, though. It's a new definition of abstinence here. 
A patient is abstinent if he or she is not drinking alcohol or using illicit drugs and using medications as prescribed. I like that. Mm -hmm. I wish other people would adopt that, other groups. So there's just a better way to have a better life sometimes, and an MOUD would be that. So, so yeah, Heather, that was a pretty average good talk for you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. We're taking oh. this one on the road. Sure. Oh, man. Goodness gracious. So, so I think next week we're going to... Talk about history. We have to... Kurt likes the, to do history because he lived there. Some of, the, uh, <laughs> some of the historical stuff surrounding MOUD. And um, legislation. And, and, and just a teaser on the narcotic farms because that's going to be a different talk. But yeah. Yay. So, yeah, history is uh, repeating itself always. All right, Casey, please save us from your dad. Put a little music behind this. Something with a little jig. All right, have a good week. Later.